Welcome to Liberated Living Ministries with John and Beverly Sheesby. You were listening to the Seed to Seed message for September 2021. For more information on this podcast and other resources, please visit our website, liberatedliving.com. Grace to you and greetings to you from Bixby in Oklahoma, where we are now just past the solstice and uh, suddenly fall has come upon us. The temperatures have dropped, which really pleases Bev. She's always happy when the cooler weather comes around and she can use some of the clothes that have been put up for the summer. So it's a change of seasons here in Oklahoma, although we're going to have some hot days, but in general, the weather trend is and temperatures are downward as we go on to winter. So we are both doing well. Our family is all doing well. We will be going up to Nashville week after next in order to speak at another Shop Fix Academy Mastermind Conference. Uh, we're actually having three conferences in the span of four days with uh, different members of the Mastermind group. And so I will be speaking 16 times, I believe it is, four of the devotional morning sessions and then 12 times in breakout sessions. So it'll be a compressed four days to be able to cater to everybody. And uh, we're looking forward to that. And then in November, we'll be back in Hogansville at Grace Covenant Worship Center. So those of you who are in Georgia, we look forward to seeing you when we are there. This month, we're going to part two of the series that I started last month, The Generosity of Grace. Last month, I based the message on 1 Timothy 1 and verse 14, Paul's testimony, where he says, And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And we looked at the generosity of God's grace toward us. The word generosity we looked at is the word that is without folds. In other words, it's without hidden agendas. It's without conditionality. It's without hidden expectations. It is straightforward. God's grace is generous. It is simple. It is kindly. It is the expression of his love. And in 1 Timothy 1.14, The construction there implies this, that the exceeding abundant grace of God toward Paul then issued forth, or the product of it was faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. That's the generosity of God's grace. He provides us as a result of his grace with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In other words, you don't have to produce your own faith. You don't have to produce your own love, but you receive them as part of the generous grace gift of God to you, the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So that was last month's study, and I want us this month to continue in the concept of the generosity of grace. And I've got a number of verses that we're going to be looking at and just develop this whole theme of his grace toward us, providing for us everything that we need. Now, let me comment on the word that is at the basis of our study, and that's the word charizomai. This train of thought started when I was reading in my quiet time in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. And the word there for forgiving one another and as God has forgiven you is the word charizomai. Now, when I did my original messages on forgiveness, I made the comment, and I don't know where I got this information from, but that this is the only place where the word charizomai is used of forgiveness, but that is not true. As we'll see next month, it is used also in Luke's gospel and Luke also used in 2 Corinthians for forgiveness. Albeit it's also used of grace gifts or gifts, generous free gifts that God has given to us. And so that is the context that we're going to look at today. The the free gifts of God to us, first of all, 
from Romans 8 and verse 32. He who spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? And I just want to read that entire section because it amplifies this whole matter of the love of God, which we have received in Christ Jesus. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 31, now verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not, shall he not with him also freely give? That's the word charizomai. Grace gifts, freely by grace give us what? All things. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him, who loved us. We're going to be looking at the trial of your faith, and we're starting with this presupposition, with this declaration of the Word of God. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Okay? For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And Paul said, that's the love that we received through the abundant grace of God. We received faith and we received love that are in Christ Jesus. Now, he's saying that he's given to us all things. If he didn't spare his son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us all things? Well, you might ask, how do we receive? How do we appropriate those all things that are part of our inheritance in Jesus Christ? And I want to refer you to Second Peter chapter 1, because there he gives us the answer. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And fortunately, the New King James Version doesn't translate what is in the Greek. And it's, it's cut idiom, his own glory and virtue, by his own glory and virtue. It's not about our glory and our virtue. It's not because we are deserving or we are worthy. It's because of his own glory and virtue that he has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Then he says this, by which he has given to us exceedingly great and threatening commandments. Right? No. Wrong, by which he has given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So if my partaking in the divine nature is through the promises of God, then obviously the most important currency that you can receive in salvation is the currency of faith in order to believe and lay hold of those promises by which we become partakers of the divine nature. Everything is provided for us, for life and for godliness. Whatever you're going to need in your physical life in this, in this natural world, and whatever you're going to need for your spiritual life, your spiritual growth, is provided by His divine power, and it is based upon His glory and His virtue. It has nothing to do with you. It's a grace gift. Can you understand why I get so excited about grace as opposed to the old covenant and law and the limited accessibility to the favors of God because it was all based upon the obedience of man? Here we are absolutely saturated. We are overwhelmed with the generosity of God's grace, giving us everything for life and godliness, everything that we need. But then he gives it to us through his great and precious promises. And so we are given faith to lay hold of those promises, to believe for everything that he has provided for us. And 
it is all based on the fact that if he didn't spare Jesus, his own son, his beloved son, but was willing to give him up for us all, and Jesus was willing to go to the cross and suffer on the cross, if he didn't spare Jesus, why do we think that he would withhold anything else from us? No. And if he gave us Jesus freely, why do we think that there's some conditionality on other things that he might give to us. Why are we seduced into believing that he's only going to prosper us if we tithe? He's only going to bless us if we do certain things. There is so much craziness in the body of Christ at the moment with an emphasis on observing feasts and all the rest of it that is just an entrapment going back under the old covenant believing that there are certain blessings that are only ours if we do certain things no 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 it is by his promises that he's given to us that we appropriate everything that is in the divine nature, become partakers of the divine nature. What higher thing is there than that as an end result of our faith, becoming partakers of the divine nature? Wow. That's what's before us. That's what's granted to us through this amazing gospel. The second verse that I want us to look at where the word charizma is used is in 1 Corinthians 2. This just takes us a little further into this amazing provision that is given to us and why so many of God's children are not enjoying or not receiving or not basking or not frolicking in this amazing generosity of grace. From verse 9, but as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Now, I've heard messages through my Christian life. I'm now 75 years of age, but I've heard so many messages on this mystery of God. God moves in a mysterious way. He's wonders to perform and so on. And all these mysteries, you know, eye has not seen, nor has ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man. The things that God has prepared for those who love him. But this is what Paul says. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man? Except the spirit of the man which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. And here's the key verse. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. There's the word, charizomai, freely given, grace gifts, generous grace gifts to us. We, these things have been freely given and he's given us his Holy Spirit so that we might know these things that have been freely given to us of God. So why are we not enjoying them? Why are we not living in them? And he gives us the answer there. He says, for we have not received the spirit of of the world, but the spirit which is from God. My brother and sister, it is a spiritual issue. It's not a mental, cognitive issue. It's a spiritual issue. There is a spirit in the world that is anti-antagonistic, diametrically opposed to the spirit of revelation, which we have received as God's children. And these two are mutually exclusive. The deeper that you imbibe the spirit of the world, the less you're able to receive the spirit of revelation. In the same way, the more you receive the spirit of revelation, the less you can be influenced and affected by the spirit that is out there in the world. We're living in a time, in a season, Season, as every one of you is aware, where there is a spirit loose in the world, it is a spirit of deception. It is a spirit of fear. It is a spirit of destruction that is out there in the world. And if you expose yourself to that spirit, whether you're, you're, you know, you're watching the news, you're watching the media, and, and realize that there's a spirit over the mainstream media that is hostile to the kingdom of God, if you want to live and walk in kingdom reality, I want to tell you, switch off your television, switch off the news. I'm not saying don't watch any television. Bev and I love to watch sports, but 
I'm telling you, you have to be so careful as to what you're exposing yourself to because there's a spirit in the world that is diametrically opposed to you receiving what has freely been given to you of God. There are other verses of Scripture I've taught before on this. Paul says in Romans 8 and verse 15, Now we have received not the spirit of bondage again to fear, but we have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. And he's referencing there the spirit of bondage to the law. And the result of that is that you have fear. And I've made the statement many times that if you have fear, any fear of not measuring up, of displeasing God, of not knowing, doing enough, then the reality is probably that you are still under the the law. The, The spirit of bondage again to fear, that bondage to the law, and it's a spiritual thing, causes you to have fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father, those two are mutually exclusive. You can't bask in your position your identity and your authority as a son and a daughter of God if you're under the law. The law is diametrically opposed to the spirit of adoption. And that's why we have so many orphan Christians who do not know who the Father is. They do not know how much they are loved. They do not know. They feel separated from the love of God. Although Paul says in Romans 8, nothing can separate us. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. But I can allow the, the, the spirit of, the, of legalism, the spirit of the law that causes fear, the spirit of fear to cause me to doubt the love of God toward me. The other verse of scripture that I love to refer to is 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, where Paul says, we have not received the spirit of fear. God hasn't given us, excuse me, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power, and of love, and of a sound mind. It's a spirit. It's a spirit. Listen, folks, giving in to fear is not just an emotional thing. There is a spirit of fear. It is rampant in the world right now over this whole COVID and and vaccines and all the rest of what is going on in the world. The whole purpose of the globalist elite is to cause people to fear because when people are afraid, you can control them. When people are afraid, they're going to go and buy stuff to try and make themselves feel better. It motivates the economy, but it also enables rigid control of people who are afraid. There is a plot on the part of the spirit of this world, the spirit of this age, to bring God's people, as well as all the people, into the state of fear. But God has not given you a spirit of fear. He's given you a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind or self-control. Listen, unsound thinking is a manifestation of fear. And you know how it is. You can hear one thing and your mind just runs away with it. Your thoughts just in no time flat have brought you into despair, discouragement, fear. And because of one little thought what that was injected, that's not from God. God hasn't given you a spirit of fear. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, we have not received the spirit of the world. And Paul in Romans 12, 2 says this, be not conformed to this world. And one of the translations says, don't let the world press you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. My word, is that an important word for this season that we're in right now? Be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And our minds have to be renewed through the truth of what God has said, what his word said, what his promises have said. What God has promised us is the most important thing for us to renew our minds with. Otherwise, the world is going to improve 
press us into its mold. We're going to succumb to that spirit of fear, that spirit of worldly wisdom that is out there, which is what Paul is referring to in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 in that whole context. It's that, that worldly wisdom that is in opposition to the revelation of the things of the Spirit of God. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. My brother and sister, I want to say this, and this is not a legalistic statement. This is not to, to put bondage on anyone. If you are not in the Word of God, if you are not feeding yourself on the truth of God's Word in these days, you will succumb to the spirit of the world. How is your mind going to be renewed? It is through truth. And the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth who is said, Jesus said, would lead us into all truth. But I tell you what, the Holy Spirit doesn't work irrespective of the word of God, there is a wonderful harmony between the word that God has given us and the operation of the spirit. Obviously, the spirit can speak beyond just what you've read in the word. But I tell you what, you need to be reading the word of God. You know, Bev and I have found during this whole time, during COVID, we have spent so much more time in the word because we find it so important and necessary to feed our souls, to feed our minds, to feed our spirits on the truth of God's word. And we have had so many revelations of truth that have been such a blessing to us during this whole season. God has spoken, kept on speaking to us. Our minds are being renewed with the truth so that we don't fall into the trap that the world wants to set for us of fear, 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 fear. It's vitally important. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, the third verse of scripture that I want us to reference, and this is going to be a bit of a shock to some of you. But in Philippians chapter 1, listen to this. Paul says this. I'm going to read a few verses from verse 27. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Man, I love that phrase, the faith of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is all about faith in the word of God, faith in the promises of God. Faith, as Paul said, was the gift that he received when this abundant grace came toward him. He received faith and love that is in Christ Jesus. The faith of the gospel. Then he says, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. Not in any way terrified of your adversaries. So let me introduce you to a wonderful truth. In this world, you will have tribulation. You will face adversity. You will have opposition. You will experience the trial of your faith. If you don't grasp that, you are going to be sorely disappointed. If you think that God is going to deliver you from every kind of test or every kind of trial that comes your way, then you're going to be disappointed when he doesn't seem to deliver you. Paul says, not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. So adversity is a proof of your salvation from God. If you weren't truly saved, you would be left alone. You wouldn't experience adversity for to you. Listen to this. It has been granted. Charizomai. This is a grace gift. This is a generous gift of God to you. To you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. <laughs> Paul, why on earth would you include 
in this wonderful passage the concept that this is a gift of God's grace to me to suffer for the sake of Christ. Surely that can't be accurate. Yes, it is accurate because you see, here's the fundamental bottom line. Jesus was a perfect man, perfect in every way. And yet the Bible says that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. What does that mean? That meant that until Jesus went through the trials of his faith, he had an untested obedience. And so his obedience was not a learned obedience, although he had obedience as a perfect son, but the learning experience, the learning of obedience came through having to make choices because of what he was suffering. Do I go with the father's will or do I choose my own will? And so obedience that is untested is not an obedience that is worth anything, is it? Faith that is untested is not worth anything. See, Peter says this, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold which perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise, honor, and glory at the appearing of Christ Jesus. You see, the word for trial there, the meaning of the word doesn't focus on the trial per se, but it is the approbation or the approving of your faith. In other words, the word is looking at the proving genuineness of your faith. Let's let's translate it that way. That the trial of your faith, the proving genuineness, you're not starting with a faith that is faulty, but it's unproven. It's untested. And so God allows you on behalf of Christ to go through that testing of your faith. Now, the word that is used, suffering, is not a negative word. It's just deep emotion. It's uh, the word that means deep emotion, to feel strongly, heavy emotion. That's it. And so the testing of your faith does lead to this heavy emotion because can I trust God? Can I believe his promises? Have I really heard him or have I just made up these words? Bev and I have experienced this so many times. Let me take you back to our coming to America because this past Last week, we celebrated our 39th anniversary of arriving in the United States of America. And you can understand that it was a a week of great gratitude to God, great celebration. But at the same time, it was a time of going back and looking back and going over the experience that we had of coming to the United States of America and the tremendous trial of our faith that we went through. It started, of course, with the fact that when we applied for our visas to come to the United States of America, now I had received all these promises from God and they were so many that Bev would say, are you sure you're not just reading into the scriptures? Are you sure you're not just making those up? Because it seemed like there was such a flow of promises relating to us leaving and it parallel Abraham and Sarah's journey, it, it leaving the country that we were part of and God was taking us to a new country. And we had so many of these promises and it was wonderful. We rejoiced in them, but they were unproven. <laughs> the trial of our faith hadn't yet occurred. We had these promises and we rejoiced in them, but then we had to go through the approbation, the proving genuineness of our faith that we had really heard God. I want to tell you that we were tempted many times to think, Do have we really heard God? Surely things wouldn't be so difficult. If we had really heard God, everything would just flow nicely. It would all be easy if we've really heard God. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> Do you hear what I'm trying to say? Because many of you have felt the same way. You've laid hold of the promises of God. You've believed God. And then it's like, man, this is difficult. This is not easy. Where in the scriptures does it tell me it's going to be as hard as this? And you go through the emotional struggles, the suffering because your emotions are involved and you're concerned. Have I really heard God? Is God going to keep his word? Is God faithful to his word? And so you go through this this suffering. Now listen to what Paul says in the next verse. Having the same conflict 
which you saw in me and now here is in me. So let's put it together. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict. The word for conflict, agona. This is the word that was used of the places where they would have the games, where they would have their athletic contests. And so it came to mean a struggle, just like an athlete has to struggle with his own body, struggles against adversaries, struggles to get to the end point, to finish the, the race, to finish the course. It's called a conflict or an agona. And he says, you're going to have the same conflict that you have seen in me. And now here that I'm going through. Same conflict. What is the conflict about? And Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says there, fight the good fight of faith. <laughs> fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life to which you were called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Here's what happens. We get a promise from God and we homologia, the word confess there, homologia. We say the same thing that God has said. We, for many witnesses, we tell people, God has said this, God has said this, God has given me this promise, God has given me this word, and then get ready because the struggle starts. The, the enemy comes against you. The, the enemy comes against that word to see if you're going to let go. Has God really said? Can you trust what God has said? That's what he came to Eve with. Has God really said? Have you really heard God? Is God genuine in what he has said? And so that's what the, the conflict starts. You make the confession before many witnesses. You've given this good confession and now you, you fight the fight of faith. It's an agona. And in fact, he uses the word to agonize. Fight is the word agonizai. Fight the good agona. Agonize over this agony of faith. <laughs> oh. oh, I love it. You see, we want everything to just flow so easily. When we received the invitation from a Manly Beasley's ministry, Gospel Harvester's ministry, to come to the States, and we received the letter of invitation, we submitted that to the American Embassy in Cape Town in South Africa. Because I was a pastor, I wasn't subject to the quota system. If I was approved, I could come based on the fact my qualifications as a pastor. And so I was invited to come as an evangelist in association with gospel harvesters. And so I received the letter of invitation. We filled out all the forms, went through all the physicals and, and, and so on. And we sent of our application to Cape Town. And a few weeks later, we got a letter from them. The State Department had rejected our application for visas. And I can remember so clearly, and that's 39 years ago, I can remember receiving that letter, going to the mailbox at 10 Galway Road, where we were staying with Bev's parents in Stirling in East London, going to the mailbox and getting that letter out of the mailbox and excitedly opening it, only to be so devastated because our application had been refused. And I can remember Bev and I walking into the house going down the passageway to the back bedroom and we knelt down at the side of the bed and this heaviness came all over me. You talk about, you know, this deep emotions, the, the suffering. It has been granted to you to suffer. I was suffering. I was just feeling so discouraged. I was feeling so down. I was feeling like, oh man, we've been rejected. And we knelt at the bedside and I said to Bev, well, we've tried. They've, the door's been shut in our face. We had received invitations from three large churches in South Africa, approaches about pastoring. And we had turned them all down. And I said to Bev, well, maybe it wasn't God's will for us to go to the United States after all. And so we knelt at the bed, spread the letter in front of us, 
and we started to pray. And the first part of my prayer was just like, oh, God, you know, we've 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 done what we felt was the right thing to do. And maybe we've missed you and and so on. Maybe you don't want us to go to the United States. Maybe we, we've just missed your voice and we thought we heard from you and so on. And it was like as we were kneeling there. <laughs> this thing began to rise up within my spirit. No, I've heard God. I have his word. He has given us promises. And we began to declare what God had spoken to us. We began to declare the promises of, of God that he had given us for our move to America. We just, you know, it just rose up in both of us. And both of us just felt the anointing of the Holy Spirit. There's the suffering. There's the agony. There's the agony of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. You see, so many of us are tempted to give up when everything seems to go against the, the word that God has given us. We just want to give up. My brother and sister, I want you to see this. Not only has it been given to you, it's a grace gift to believe in Jesus, but also to go through this agony of faith, the suffering of that, that faith produces because your faith will be tested. Your faith will be tried because your faith is unproven until it goes through the fire. You have faith. You've received the faith of Jesus. You've received the love of God. But then it's like the enemy wants to use unbelief to come against your faith. And he wants to use rejection to come against the love that you've received in Jesus Christ. And so these are the battles that you're going to have to face. These are the battles you're going to have to deal with. And we are going through it right now. And I don't know if you remember two months ago, we looked at what Peter said. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him before he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. Steadfast in the faith. Resist him. Steadfast in the faith. There is no resistance as great in the face of the enemy's onslaught as you standing steadfast in the faith. Faith in what? Faith in what God has said. Faith in his promises. Knowing, listen to this, that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. <laughs> we all are going to go through those same tests, the same agonizing, the same suffering the, over the, the promises of God to us. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you to him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Listen, you're going to suffer a while over every promise that God gives you. It's going to, there's going to be an agona. There's going to be a conflict. There's going to be some warfare. You're going to have to fight the good fight of faith. But did you notice that Paul calls it a good fight? It's a good fight. And you know what a good fight is? It's one that you win. See, we are winners. In Romans 8, we read, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. You are going to overcome. Your faith is going to stand the test of the trial. That's why it's being tried. If your faith was not genuine, it would not be subjected to the fire. But the fact that you're experiencing the fire is a proof to you that your faith is genuine. It's a, what he said in in Philippians chapter 1, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you it is the proof of your salvation and that from God. <laughs> Woo, striving together for the faith of the gospel. It's proof of your salvation. It's a proof that your faith is genuine. Bev and I therefore we resubmitted our application to the embassy in Cape Town. They wanted some additional information from Manly Beasley. They really wanted guarantees that we would be financially taken care of. But as the, you know, he wrote a letter saying, we can't give those guarantees because we're a ministry who walks by faith. But this is what we believe that John can expect in coming to America. And he gave figures and so on. 
And bless God, that satisfied the American embassy and we were granted our visas to come to America. Now, it never worked out that way in the beginning. And we went through the trial of our faith and oh my word, I could tell you story after story after story. But here's what happened. God was faithful. God was faithful every time, every time. We've shared with you the story before. Now, we had no food in the house, no food in the house. And I was having my quiet time one Wednesday morning, and I was reading 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 10. He supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. And I felt the Holy Spirit saying the next money that you receive is not bread. It is seed to be sowed. And that was real hard. We had no gas in the car. We had no food in the house. And yet, yeah, God was saying the next seed that you receive. Bev went to a, a fullness conference meeting that night. And as she walked in the door, somebody handed her something in her hand and said, the Lord told me to give you this. And she took it and not didn't look at it and put it in her purse. And came the offering time. The Holy Spirit said, I've given you seed to sow. And she opened her purse and took that note out. And it was a hundred dollar bill. And it was so grievous to her. Because a hundred dollars would have done a lot for us at that time. But she sewed it and she came back that night after the meeting and she said, you'll never believe what I did. I said, what did you do? She said, I sewed a hundred dollars in the offering and I began to just praise the Lord. I said, wow, do you realize that God has a great harvest for us? And that's why he gave us so much so much seed to sow. And we began to praise the Lord for the harvest. Well, that was Wednesday, Thursday, Friday morning. We were on our last food. I mean, the last bread, the last milk. We had nothing in the home. We prayed at in our family devotions, which we would have every morning. Tracy got a rhema from God. She said, I had a dream. And in the dream, we received two checks for a thousand dollars each. And we began to just rejoice and praise the Lord for that. And, you know, Tracy was about maybe eight years of age at that time. This is shortly after we came to America. We were living in Coffee Tavern Road in Bedford in Texas in a rented home. We hadn't paid the rent that month. We didn't have the money for it. But she gets that word. We're going to get two checks for $1,000. After breakfast, I go out jogging. And I'm struggling because we had no money. We had no money. We had no food. Ah, people, I'm telling you the trial of your faith. It's a struggle when you go through it. It's suffering when you go through it. But oh, the end result. And so I go jogging. And when I come back, Bev and Brad are standing outside the house. And Bev's waving something in her hand. And there was a brother at First Baptist Eulis where we were attending at that time. And the Holy Spirit had told him to give us a check for $1,000. And he said, okay, Lord, I'll give it to them on Sunday. And the Lord said, no, take it to them this morning. He didn't know that we were leaving to drive up to Oklahoma to do a meeting in Hominy, Oklahoma on that Sunday. And so he was obedient to the Spirit and he came around and he brought the $1,000. We came up to Hominy, Oklahoma, to just a small little group, and they gave us an amazing offering. And then we stayed up. It was 4th of July, I believe it was, 1983. We stayed up for 4th of July, saw the fireworks, drove back after on 5th of July, and in the mail was the second check for $1,000. The trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold with, which perishes. I could tell you stories like that when we were st I was a student at seminary and Bev was doing her midwifery training. I can remember one night us sitting at our little dinette and we had no food in the house. And we just prayed. We sat there at the dinette opposite each other and we prayed and thanked God for our food. And the doorbell rang. <laughs> And there was Bev's aunt who had driven all the way from Randburg to Yeovil where we were staying. And she had a basket of food. God is faithful. But oh, brother and sister, listen, it is a, there is a trial of your faith. There is suffering associated with believing the word of God because your faith is to be proven genuine. And listen, this is a grace gift from God. So if it's a grace gift from God, then you know it is for your good. 
You know it's because God is accomplishing more in you that you can imagine. Ah, just like Jesus learned obedience through the thing that he suffered. It wasn't that he was disobedient, it was that his obedience was untested. In the same way, you have faith, you've received faith, and then God gives you promises for you to believe, and you lay hold of those promises, and you confess them before many witnesses. As Paul said, 1 Timothy 6, you confess them before many witnesses, and then it's like the enemy comes and says, okay, has God God really said, and your faith is tested. It's fight the good fight of faith, but it's a good fight because you win. We win in this fight. It is not even a question that our faith is going to be proven to be genuine. That's why we're going through the conflict, because our faith is genuine. Now, I want to finish off with a couple of verses from Hebrews. The writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 4, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Confession here is the word again, homologia, saying the same thing as God has said, saying what God has said. Now, I want us to look at the, 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 this chapter, and I, I can't spend too much time developing this, but I'm going to read the first few verses. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. What is the gospel? The gospel is the promise. But the word which they heard did not profit them. So the promise, the gospel, and the word are all the same thing. The word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he said, and, and so on. He goes on. And then this, this verse in verse 12, which has been so misunderstood. For the word of God. What is the word? It's the promise. The promise of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. See, that's what the promise does. The promise does what the law could never do. The promise is God's way of bringing the, the, the sanctification to you. It divides the soul and the, the, the spirit and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart because so often God gives us a promise and then he leaves us alone to see what we will do. How much of the soul there is still left in us? I've told the story often about the, when we first came to the United States, we were at First Baptist Euless, and we spoke in a Sunday school class one Sunday morning and shared our testimony of coming to the United States. And there was a couple there, and they invited us to come to their home for a meal the following day, the Monday. And just before we sat down to eat, the man took me aside and he said, I, I need you to discern something for me. He said a couple of years ago, he said, I was working with as an executive with Mobile Oil. And he said, I was in Fort Worth on business and I was in a hotel. And in the middle of the night, God woke me up and he told me two things. He said, I'm going to make you a millionaire and I'm going to teach you to walk on water. And he said to me, he said, do you think that's God? And I said to him, absolutely. That sounds just like God. He comes and he gives us promises of what we are utterly incapable of doing in our own strength. And then he began to share with me his plan to, uh, <clears throat> with a, another brother from uh, one of the cities here in Oklahoma. They were going to buy a, a, a refinery that had, got, had gone out of business, was owned by the Champlin Oil Company, they were going to buy that refinery, so they were getting grants from the city and, and so on, and he shared his plan to become a millionaire, and the Lord said, don't say a word. He said, do you think this is God? I said, I, I really don't know, the you know about the plan. I know that God said he's going to make you a millionaire, and he's going to teach you to walk on water. Two years later, I got a phone call from the same brother. And he, on the phone, he said to me, he said, Brother John, he said, and he was crying, he said, my partner has taken me for everything. 
I've lost everything. And uh, the Holy Spirit said, go up to see him. So I flew up to Oklahoma City, rented a car, drove to where he was and spent time with him. And in, in the, the ministry to him, we got to the place where the Spirit of God began to reveal to him. He saw a vision of a rowboat. Jesus was rowing the boat, but the boat was making no headway. It couldn't even move. And it, you know, it was just, it was a futile attempt on the part of Jesus to row the boat. The next thing in his vision, he sees Jesus get out of the boat and step out on the water and begin to walk on water. And I said, do you want to go and walk on water as well? And he said, yes, I want to get out there. And so he stepped out of the boat and began to walk on water. And he began to describe to me the sensation, the excitement of walking on water. And I got the, revel the, the interpretation. I said, Jesus told you that he was going to make you a millionaire and he was going to teach you to walk on water by the Holy Spirit that night in Fort Worth. And he left you alone to see what was in your heart and you built a boat. And the vision was given to you to make you realize that not even Jesus could make your boat get to the other side because he had never said build a boat. He had said, I'm going to teach you to walk on water. He wanted you to live supernaturally, but you had the idea of how to make a million. And that was to get a refinery back up and running and working. And you could get all this finance from the, the banks in the city and the and grants from the, the, the city and so on. And you built a boat. And not even Jesus can make your boat go. See, that's the trial of your faith. That's the suffering we go through in this whole business of the trial of our faith. Now, Hebrews chapter 4 says that's what the promise does. The promise is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God gives you a promise and then he leaves you alone, just like he did with Abraham. And Abraham and Sarah cooked up a way to have a child when it seemed impossible that there was any way that Sarah could bear a child. God leaves them alone and they cook up the plan with Hagar and Ishmael is produced. And so our boats are Ishmael's. They cost a lot of money. They're difficult to maintain and ultimately Ultimately, they are not the child of promise. They ultimately, they don't receive the inheritance blessing. They receive a measure of blessing, but never the inheritance. The inheritance is always for the child of promise. It is always for what is produced by faith in God alone. What God produces that's what the, the promise does. The word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. The promise of God, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And so that's what happens in the trial of a faith. If there is any soulishness in me and I can figure it out, it's like God leaves me alone. <laughs> to expose the futility of my human effort and human thought so that I come back to rely upon his word alone so that I lean on him. Now, he says this. He says, seeing that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, verse 14, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession our saying the same thing as God, the promise of God. The problem with Israel was it the promise was not mixed with faith in them that heard it. Why? Because they looked at the impossibilities of the situation and that dominated what they confessed. They confessed the giants. They confessed the impossibility. They said they we were like grasshoppers in their sight. Yes, the grapes were amazing, were wonderful. The land is flowing with milk and honey, but they're giants there. And they were focused on the giants in the land. And because of that, they would not believe the promise of God. A promise did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. So he says, Hold fast to your confession. Then he says this, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points 
tempted as we are, yet without sin. Listen, we have a high priest who understands what it's like to be human. He went through temptations like we will never experience in the wilderness. After 40 days and 40 nights of being without food and water, he had a a direct encounter with the tempter. The Bible says the tempter came. Satan came with his biggest weapons to try to defeat Jesus. He went through this and so he can sympathize with us in all points. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We've often taken that verse, verse 16, in, uh, uh, apart from the, the context of what goes before. How do we come boldly? Well, he tells us in verse 14, hold fast your confession. You come to the throne of grace and you obtain mercy when you, as you hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to saying the same thing that God has said. Remember he said in chapter 3 and verse 1 of Hebrews, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus lives as our high priest to mediate our confession before the Father. He doesn't have to sacrifice any any blood anymore. That's all over as Hebrews 8 and 9 tells us and, and into 10. It's That's all done. The sacrifice is complete. But he ever lives to make intercession for us on what basis? On the basis of us holding fast our confession. <laughs> Hold fast your confession. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 35. He says to them, after he has spoken about the uh, access that we have into the presence of God, he says, do not cast away your confession, your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. And the word for confidence there is freedom or boldness of speaking. Freedom or boldness of speaking, of confessing what God has said. Don't cast it away, which has great recompense of reward. See, what the enemy wants you to do is to abandon the promise because everything comes against the promise, because it seems absolutely impossible. And so what we first received in the presence of God with such an anointing of faith and such an anointing of the grace of God upon it, and you took that promise and you confessed it boldly before others and so on. And now it seems like it's not working out. Everything seems to be contrary to it. And he said there's a temptation to cast away your boldness in speaking. I know you've experienced that. Boy, have I experienced that. As, as I've characterized it, sometimes it feels like there's a, there's a demon sitting right outside my mouth, taunting me and saying, God, confess it. You know it's not true. It's not going to work. You know, what's the use of even confessing it? Because look at the situation you're in. Look how hopeless it is. And it's like there's a demon sitting right there and he's, he's boy, he's just intimidation. And that's what the word fear in, in 2 Timothy 1.7 is. God has not given us a spirit of timidity or intimidation. The enemy uses intimidation, but he's given us a spirit of power, love, and a sound mind. And I know you've experienced that as well, that, that intimidation of the enemy. And he's saying, just, just abandon it, cast it away. You didn't hear God. You missed it. You missed it. You had too much pizza the night before. You didn't hear God. If you had heard God, it would be working out beautifully. But because you're just in such a state of struggle and suffering over the word, it cannot have been God. So just cast away your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. There's one final verse that I want to close with, and that's in Luke 22. And verse 31, Peter said, though everyone else abandons you, Lord, you can count on me. <laughs> and then Jesus said this, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. I have prayed for you, not that you would be delivered out of the test, but that your faith would not fail. And it looks like 
Peter utterly failed. He utterly failed to humanize because three times he denied Jesus. One to a, a little young girl. He was intimidated by a young girl who said, you're one of his. I've seen you with him kind of thing. And Peter denies it. He's intimidated. And yet Jesus said, I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. Listen, sometimes when you're in the midst of it, it looks like your faith might have failed. But I want to tell you what, Jesus is praying for you that your faith will not fail. Because the most important thing in your spiritual journey is the, the issue of your faith in his promises. Because by faith in his promises, you are going to receive everything that he has provided for you. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11 is very, very clear. Now, Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2, he said, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he said, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race, the agona, the agona, same word, the agony, the, the fight, the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Hebrews 3, 1 says that he is the apostle. He is the foundation of our faith. He's the one who initiated. He's the one who set it all in motion. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. If you think your faith is not going to finish, listen, he's saying to you, I'm the author and the finisher of the faith. Your faith that you have received from Jesus as a grace gift to you is a genuine thing. It's going to endure. It's going to make it through. You're fighting the good fight of faith. It's one that you win. And Paul could say in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. It's all about your faith. It's all about the test of your faith. And Paul could say, I have fought a good fight. <laughs> uh, fight the good fight of faith. <laughs> It's a good fight, people. It's not a bad thing. Where you're going through right now, I know it's hard for you to think of it, but it's good. You're in a good place because your faith is being tested. If it weren't genuine faith, you would have been left alone. You wouldn't be tested. So I want to encourage you right now encourage you in this world you shall have tribulation we're living in a hostile environment the world is diametrically opposed to the kingdom of God because it operates on the basis of what you can see taste smell touch whereas the kingdom of God is faith in what God has said and at the moment, we are being so seduced by the spirit of the world through the spirit of fear and everything else that is coming against us to doubt the promises of God, to doubt the veracity of God and his ability to protect us, to keep us, to provide for us, to do everything else. We are in a fight. We are in an agony. We are in a conflict. We are in suffering. That suffering is a part of the grace gift of God to you. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29. To you it has been given on behalf of Christ, not just to believe in him, but to suffer for him. It's a gift of grace, not just to believe him but to suffer. So rejoice, rejoice. It is time for us to rejoice in the season that we're going through. And if you feel like your faith is failing, like your faith is, is fading, like you're, you're, like you're so discouraged, you're so disappointed because it seems like God isn't answering prayer in the way that you've thought. Hold on. Hold on. Help is on the way. I love that song of Michael W. Smith. Hold on. Help is on the way. He said that he would never leave you. Stay strong. Help is on the way. Listen, after you have suffered a while, Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5, we read it. After you have suffered a while, he's going to perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. He's going to perfect Establish, strengthen, 
and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's bringing you to a place of settled confidence in your father and in his love. Nothing can separate you from his love, which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate you. In all these things, you are more than a conqueror. I don't know if you've realized this, but the most important word that God is wanting to communicate with his people at this time is, I love you. I love you. And because I love you, you're going to be okay. You're going to make it. You're going through the suffering. You're going through this agony. This agony of, of the trial of your faith. But he said, he says, you're going to make it because I love you and nothing can separate you from my love. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your love, which you have freely given to us. Thank you for the generosity of your grace and of the gifts of your grace and all that your grace has brought to us like Paul, we have received through that grace, faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, right now, perhaps like never before in the history of this country, so many believers are going through such a trial of their faith, such a testing. There's so much suffering going on because of the hostility. We're seeing now like never before how hostile the world system is to the kingdom of God. And many of us are being so swayed and so intimidated because of that, because it seems like where is God? It's like God has abdicated the throne and he's allowing everything to go absolutely haywire and out of control. And we haven't realized that in the midst of the darkness of the world system, we are shining even brighter. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you for darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the people but his light will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. Lord, thank you that this is a time for us to shine, for us to be glorious. Thank you that the, the deliverance is close at hand. Thank you, Lord. You are working in ways that we cannot see that are imperceptible to our human eyes, but you are at work. You are fulfilling your purpose. You are doing great and marvelous things. And so today we want to tell you, Father, that we trust you. We trust you. We trust you. We feel like the words of one of those hymns of, of Charles Wesley. What more can we say, Lord, but that we trust you. But oh, for grace to trust you more. And thank you that you've given us grace, the grace gift to trust you and to suffer on behalf of Christ. That's amazing that we are partakers of his suffering in this whole trial of our faith. Thank you that Jesus is our forerunner. He proved that it was possible to stay true and to stay firm in your confidence in God, even through the most egregious testing in the garden when he, his sweat was, it were, great drops of blood and on the cross he stayed true to you, to the call, and to believing, and trusting, uh, trusting that you could, were going to raise him from the dead, who for the joy that was set before him, Hebrews 12 says, endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of God. Thank you, Jesus. You are the author and the finisher of our faith. You're the pioneer. You're the example for us. And we receive your grace today. We receive your grace. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the conclusion of this message. You've been listening to the ministry of John and Beverly Sheesby. For more information on this and other available teachings, please visit our website at www.liberatedliving.com. God bless you and thank you for listening.